This is the sixth and final week of our Family 2.0 series. Throughout the series, we've been addressing the question, how do we experience family the way God intended it to be experienced? This week, we are talking about the topic of abortion. It's an important topic. Since abortion was uh, made legal in 1973, there have been over 50 million abortions in America. The good news is it is on the decline, except for a spike uh, in 2006, 2007. It's been on, on the decline, actually, since 1990. But it has impacted the family. And let me just say this. Anytime I deal with a controversial issue like abortion, I realize a couple of things. First, most of you, before you even came this weekend, you've already formulated your opinion. And then second, expectations of what's going to happen over the next few minutes and emotions are all over the place. Some of you are very, very, very pro-life. And uh, you're hoping I'm going to really stick it to those pro-choicers and I'm going to give them a big beat down. And if I don't do that, you'll probably leave a little bit disappointed. Some of you are, are very, very pro-choice. You've drawn the line in the sand, and in your mind, anybody, anybody who oppo opposes a woman's right to choose, uh, they're just kind of out of touch with reality. And then there's another group. Some of you are just apathetic. Your attitude is kind of like, whatever, you know, whatever. In your mind, you know, what a woman wants to do with her body, that's her choice. Why are we even having this discussion? And then there are some of you um, who have been carrying around a secret for years, and the secret is that uh, you've had an abortion. Or maybe even as you sit here this weekend at one of our campuses, uh, you're pregnant and you're actually considering an abortion. And I just want to say, I, I know, I understand it took a boatload of courage for you to come to one of our campuses this weekend, but you've made it because you desperately want to know where you stand in God's eyes. You want to know what he would have to say about the choice that you've made, or maybe the choice you're getting ready to make. So. I think we're here from different, with different ideas and different emotions, and we're coming from different uh, perspectives, and we have different expectations. I just want to challenge all of us for the next few minutes to take all of our preconceived opinions and just kind of set them aside. I want us to relax, take a deep breath, maybe uncross our arms and ask God to show us the truth about this very, very controversial issue. And I would really encourage, at some point, some of you may feel the need and the temptation just to get up and leave because maybe it's not going the way you thought it was going to go. I would just really encourage you, listen through to the end and see what God has to say to you. Let me just say this. I'm glad I'm here this weekend. And I'm glad my mom, who's in this service, I'm glad that 58 years ago when she was 25 years old, she didn't decide against having me. And guess what? You're glad that your mom had you too, right? In fact, I got this email this week from someone, just an incredibly young Christian lady that I, I didn't know this, but she said, I never told you, but my mom was in high school when she found out she was pregnant with me, and her guidance counselor pressured her to abort, abort me. She actually made the abortion appointment, but the night before, she had a dream about me and decided to cancel the appointment. And she went ahead and wrote an article that was published, but so excited that her mom changed her mind. Kind of reminds me of a, a quote by Ronald Reagan. He said this, I've noticed everyone who is for abortion has already been born. And there's a lot of truth to that. And since that's the case, it just seems logical to me, and again, I'm a PE major, right? It just seems logical to me that we allow every other life to have the same opportunity to experience life as we've experienced it. And that's why I firmly believe that we need to protect the rights of developing children inside their mother's womb. That's where I stand, probably no big surprise to you. But I want you to understand, I didn't arrive at this position because of convenience. I didn't arrive at this position because of preference. I certainly didn't arrive at this position because of politics. I absolutely detest how we use this in the political arena 
to divide sides. That is not my issue. It's because of God's word and it's because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, this is what I believe. I believe the moment that somebody establishes a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, something happens and everything in our life is redirected. And as a Christian, everything becomes reoriented. And suddenly the Bible becomes the priority in our lives. And we begin to filter everything in our life through that authority. Every decision, every choice, every word, every thought. By the way, you, talk, you saw starting point uh, in the loop this weekend. If you're new in your Christian faith, and if you want to understand how you can begin to live under the authority of God's word, that would be a great first step for you. I hope you will check it out. But once you begin to live under the authority of God's word, when you do that, things begin to change because God through his word begins to transform our lives into the individuals that he created us to be. And as that happens, see, as Christians, we begin to see that human life has a huge price tag on it. You begin to realize that each one of us is made in the image of God. Each one of us has a unique purpose that God has designed specifically for us. And I don't know about you, but in my mind, that's pretty cool. I mean, I don't know how often you think about this, but as you sit here this weekend at Holly Springs, Morrisville, Raleigh, you are made in the image of God. But not only that, you know, the Bible tells us, by the way, in great detail, <clears throat> that God has always been present in our lives. Theologians call this concept the eternal omnipresence of God. It basically means this, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, you cannot shake the presence of God in your life. That means that God was present during conception. That, mean that, that means that God was present as you developed in your mother's womb. God was present in your life during birth, during your terrible twos, during your preschool years, during your elementary school years, your middle school years, your senior high years, your college years as an adult. And for Christians, God is present with us throughout all of eternity. You cannot shake God. And then you add to that the fact that God loves each of us so much. He desires to be in a relationship with us so much that he sent his only begotten son, his most priceless possession, to die a brutal death on the cross and shed his blood. He commissioned him to rise again so that we could have eternal life and we could live with him forever. I just want you to understand, that's how crazy God is about you. God is head over heels in love with you. And in my simple mind, God loves us so much, that should probably be enough to convince us of the value that God puts on human life. I mean, the fact that he, he gave us his only begotten son to die so we could be reconciled back into a relationship with him. But I realize that for some of you, that's, that's not enough. You want me to show you a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not have an abortion, and I would love to do that. The only problem is there is no such verse. So what we have to do is we have to get into God's word and we have to search for those timeless principles that allow us as we begin to use God's word as the authority that we see everything through allows us to arrive at the correct conclusion. And that's what I want us to do over the next few minutes. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. I thought I would make it as simple as I, I could. Genesis, Genesis, the first book, chapter 1. If you didn't bring your Bible, or if you still can't find that, we will put the verses up on the screen. Genesis chapter 1 is the account of God's creation activity. And you can read it on your own, but you'll discover that God created matter, and God created the world, and God created the universe. And he separated night from day and earth from the sea, and then he created things like fish and birds and cows and horses and all kinds of elephants. I took the grandkids to the zoo, this, uh, to the circus this weekend. All kinds of cool things that God created, right? And then you come to this epic moment when God 
is getting ready to create human life. This is what it says, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And that one verse tells us that as beautiful as all other creation was, none of it was created in God's image. Birds were not created in God's image. Dogs were not created in God's image. Cats most certainly were not created in God's image. <laughs> Flowers were not created in God's image. Pine trees were not created in God's image. Only human life, think about this, only human life was created in the image of God. And that tells us that there is something distinctly precious. There's something distinctly unique about human life. And it's unique and it's precious so much so that God says you've got to protect it. You've got to preserve it. That's why when God was given the Ten Commandments to Moses, he said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. You are not allowed to take an innocent life. Don't end it. Don't murder it. Let it live. And the reason is simple. All human life, all humanity represents God's handiwork. Every person here this weekend, every person listening to me, Christian or not, believer or not, you are created in the image of God. Listen to how David addresses this, Psalm chapter 8, verse 4. He says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Now, I don't have time to explain everything that that means, but understand this, that is never said of animals. That is never said of plants. You never read that animals or, pla or, or plants are crowned uh, with glory and honor. David writes this, Psalm 22, verse 9, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. So in these verses, David is reflecting, and he sees himself within the womb, and he sees himself as coming out of the womb and being answerable to the God who created him, the God who developed him. Here's a classic one, Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. David writes, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, your works are wonderful, I know that full well. And then he says this, my frame, and he's talking about his bones and his skeleton. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret places, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. The Hebrew word woven together seems to be indicating how God, our, our veins and our arteries, how intricate they run throughout our body. Your eyes saw my unformed body. The Hebrew word there is literally fetus or embryo. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In other words, David says, God, you had my entire life planned out before I ever took my first breath. Before I took my first breath, God, you knew when I was gonna take my last breath and you knew that everything that was gonna happen in between. So it's no surprise that David concludes, oh yeah, that's right. I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. But if you get nothing else this weekend, this is what I want you to see. This is what I want you to understand. That's the kind of God we have. We have a God who meticulously designed each one of us. And we have a God who places a high price tag on his creation of life. By the way, let me just say this. There's, there's far too much scientific evidence to deny that the fetus is in fact a separate, independent God 
created life. I mean, all of the technology and medicine and research, uh, all the advancements, the things that we know now about the embryo and the development that we did not know just a few years ago. But you don't want to hear me talk about that. So we sat down with an expert. Watch the side screens. My name is Greg Brannon. I'm um, OB-GYN for 27 years and the honor of delivering on 9,000 little babies. With me, the science, the more you look into the science of fertilization, the science of embryogenesis, the more I see creator. If you're at a crime scene, CSI, how do they definitively know that you're the, the actual perpetrator of that crime? By your DNA. That is your fingerprint of life. When is that form? The moment that sperm penetrates that egg. To know that, again, the brain activity, the neural tube activity, literally have movement on 19 days after conception. To really know the myocardial function is beating at 31 days. To know that every organ in your body is there at nine weeks, they just get bigger. God makes no mistakes, none. You cannot argue genetically anything about that structure that is human being. The cool thing is this generation is now more pro-life than the previous because they're seeing the ultrasounds. They're seeing the heartbeats. They're seeing that they suck a stomach 12 weeks. They're seeing that. I do a lot of post-abortion care, even for women who desire abortion. After their treatment is done, I will not do the procedure, but I know if there's a complication and they need help, I'll run there. Just routine follow-up, I'll be there because that's where they need you the most. So I had this little girl who came to me after having an abortion. She was still spotty and bleeding. And I go, I'll make sure that, that technically everything was okay. Let me ultrasound. So when I ultrasounded, I saw a little baby and a heartbeat. They literally, the procedure was done. The abortion doctor put the catheter in to remove the baby. Did not do it by the hand of God. And I delivered that little kid seven months later. In fact, I saw her just about this during the summertime. So talk about a life that's, that's fantastic. That baby's a miracle times two. So what is Dr. Brandon saying? He's saying that there really is no question that what's growing in the womb of a mother is a life. The question actually becomes this. If you believe and you hold the position that it's a woman's right to choose, here's the question you have to grapple with. When is it okay to take that life? Would you take the life of that baby when they're one day old? A week old? A month old? Would you take the life of the baby a couple of months before the baby is born or maybe an hour before the baby is born? You see, almost without exception, the argument is that a woman's right to choose takes precedence over the life that is growing within her. I mean, it's almost as if she's solely responsible for the conception of life. But you know, before I got into ministry, I was a PE major and a science minor, and I, I, I taught eighth grade life science. Every eighth grade kid knows that a mother cannot on her own conceive a child. These days, I think they probably know that as early as the second grade, but they definitely know it by eighth grade life science, right? They know that it takes a mom who produces an egg, it takes a, it takes a father who produces a sperm, it takes two to tango, but this is what's interesting. As Christians, for us, from a biblical perspective, it actually takes three to tango. From a Christian perspective, it takes a woman to supply the egg, it takes a man to supply the sperm, and it takes God's will, God's plan. I cannot tell you how many couples over the years I have known 
that have tried and tried and tried and tried to get pregnant to conceive, but they weren't able to. And then one day out of the blue, God sovereignly causes life to be conceived. Last weekend, you met Gail Wilkins. She was the lady that I interviewed that works for the North Carolina Council for Women. And after we had finished making that interview and we had turned the cameras off, Gail looked at me and she said, Mike, you probably don't know this about me, but she said, I got pregnant when I was 14. And she said, we were so poor in those days as a family, we did not even have running water. And all of my friends in those days who were getting pregnant, they were having illegal abortions. It wasn't legal in those days. But she said, my family decided we're going to have this child and we're going to raise that child. But the doctors told her because of complications of her birth, totally impossible. She would never, ever again be able to conceive. 20 years later, Gail and Carl conceived and gave birth to a little boy who is now finishing up his education at NC State University. I'm telling you, Carl and Gail would no more. By the way, you can see her entire story. We said stop right there. We turned the cameras back on and we videoed it. You can go to our website, Get Hope. You can see her entire interview talking about that. But I'm telling you, Carl and Gail would no more say that they had the creative powers to begin that life than they would say that they had had the authority to end that life. So from a biblical perspective, it takes a woman, it takes a man, and it takes God doing his thing. So let me just review what we've looked at right here. Four biblical principles seem to be very clear, at least to me. First of all, because human life bears God's image, God set it apart as unique. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1. Second, God commands that all human life be preserved and protected. We saw that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Third, human life begins in the womb where God sovereignly oversees the development and maturation of the fetus before birth. We saw that throughout the psalm. And I think we can safely conclude, fourth, since it's God's will that every child be protected after birth, it's God's will that such protection also apply to a child in his or her prenatal state. Now let me just say this. That's what the Bible says. If you don't really care about what God thinks, and if you're really not all that interested in the authority of God's word in your life, then to be honest, this, this really doesn't mean anything to you. But you are at church, and we do teach the Bible. So it is my job to tell you what God's perspective is, what the Bible says about the sanctity of life and the protection of that life. Now, I began by saying there are several groups here. There's pro-life, there's pro-choice, there's apathetic. There's actually another group here, and it's Christians who have been in church their whole life. And some of you are listening right now, and, and you can't understand how a woman could have an abortion under any circumstances, and it's easy to feel that way at church. But let's be honest. If you really thought about it, there probably are some scenarios, some occasions where you might be able to conceive the idea that you might be able to have an abortion. For example, how about a 30-year-old career woman who is offered the job of a lifetime? And the boss says, I want you to think about it. And on her way home, she, she hasn't been feeling well lately, so she stops by Walgreens and she speaks to the pharmacist. And the pharmacist says, wow, I think you should take a pregnancy test. And she goes home and discovers that she's pregnant. And legal or not, <laughs> she knows that maternity leave is out of the question if she really wants that promotion. Add to that a boyfriend who's willing to foot the bill. What does she do? Or how about a 17-year-old girl who gets pregnant on a beach getaway with the church? <laughs> and she's embarrassed and she's afraid to tell her parents. 
And she thinks about all the challenges of being a single mom and the repercussions that it's going to have on her life. What does she do? Or maybe, maybe a 35-year-old single mom of five who never gets out, but she has some friends who invited her to go to a party. So she gets a sitter, and she goes to the party, and she has a little bit too much to drink, and she ends up sleeping with a guy. A few weeks, she finds out that she's pregnant with her sixth child as a single mom. What does she do? Let me just say something. None of those reasons, none of those reasons are acceptable reasons to have an abortion. And I know right now what some of you are thinking because probably there was a time in my life when I would think that. You're thinking, well, she should have thought about that before she crawled into bed with the guy. See, that's the way we think as Christians. And that's all true, right? I think that's all true. But let's be honest. I think we can all understand what it must be like to make a decision like that in the moment of fear and panic. And then to look back years later and regret making a choice that at the time seemed so logical. It just seemed so right. But now you realize it wasn't right at all. And you realize it was one of the biggest mistakes you made in your life. So I want to talk especially to those of you who have had an abortion. And I will just tell you, even in church, it's a lot more than you think. Because I've spoken to many of you over the last few weeks. And what I've learned is that for some of you, no matter what you do, you, guess, you just can't seem to put it behind you and move on. It just seems that you're almost shackled. You're almost chained to this one event in your past. And no matter what you do, you cannot move forward. So I, I want to talk to you. And my goal is to help you move forward. Because after all, I understand that we live in an imperfect world. I understand that in our lives, even as Christians, disobedience happens on a daily basis. I understand that it is absolutely impossible to live a life of perfection. I realize, trust me, that bad decisions are made every day, even by good people. But what I've often discovered is that when we make those decisions and we blow it, the person that we're able and willing to forgive the least is usually ourselves. We have a hard time forgiving ourselves, don't we? So if you've had an abortion, I want to encourage you that life can go on. I want to give you four biblical facts that will help you move forward. Here's the first one. Sin is sin. Sin is sin, and we all commit it. And the category of sins are numerous, and the reasons we commit the sins are numerous. However we define sin, the bottom line is this. Sin is missing the mark that God establishes for us. It's a missing the mark that God established in his word for us. It's falling or failing to obey God's truth. I, I often describe it this way. It's living outside of, of, of the parameter of God's perfect plan and perfect will for our lives. And, it, and, and he says, if you go outside the parameter, you're not going to experience life the way I designed for you to experience. But you know what? Every one of us, there are days we go outside the parameter. This is what Psalm 14.3 says. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Any questions? I mean, what does he say? He says, we've all sinned, and the reality is this. We will continue to sin until we get to heaven. So Psalms 14.3, it just reminds us that no one is only good, no one. Now, we may be able to clean up and come to church and look good, but we know, we know no one is good. Here's another one. Psalm 58, verse 3. Even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward, spreading lies. And that verse is kind of hard to believe, unless you've had a baby. And then you discover that behind that adorable little face is a bad nature, right? Like I said before, you don't have to teach that toddler how to steal a cookie. 
You don't have to teach them how to lie about stealing the cookie. You don't have to teach them how to have a tantrum when they don't get their way and get the cookie. You don't have to teach them how to be selfish and not share the cookie when they do get one. It is in their nature. They come with it. My point is this. We all sin. We have. We do. We will continue to sin. Sin is sin, and we all commit it. Second, fact number two, God is never surprised when we sin. Don't get me wrong. It grieves him. It saddens his heart when we sin. But I'm telling you, God is never surprised when we sin. He is never shocked by our disobedience. God is never sitting on his throne in heaven looking down and saying, wow, I had, I, I had no idea he could do that. I didn't believe he could actually pull that off. He knows we are capable of it. This is what Psalm 103 verse 12 says. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. He looks at us and says, oh yeah, I remember how I made them. Dust bunnies. Just dust bunnies all over the place. He knows we have a sin nature. He's saddened by it, sure. He's never shocked and surprised. Fact number three, some sins carry greater consequences than others. Now, this isn't rocket science. Some sins in our life are private. They're unknown. We deal with them. They don't really impact anybody else. Other sins, when we commit them, they impact people around us. It's like a little pebble dropped into a calm puddle of water. The ripple effects just go out. My five-year-old grandson, Brennan, is learning this in school because every once in a while, he goes next door to Grace. He loses his sticker. So you're not supposed to lose your sticker. I don't know what that means. I don't know how many stickers you lose till you lose your life, capital punishment. I don't know. But if you lose your sticker, now you can lose your sticker at Grace by talking in the bathroom or touching somebody or, you know, talking in line, those kinds of things. But he'll lose his sticker. And he was okay with that, but then he began to understand there were ramifications when he got home for losing his sticker. Like this week, they were supposed to, as a family, watch Star Wars and eat popcorn. It was something they were supposed to do as a family, but because Brennan lost his sticker, nobody got to watch the movie, and nobody got to eat popcorn. Olivia will straighten him out. She will beat him down. She's two years old. She'll get that under control, right? My point is this. Sometimes when we do things, it affects other people. But it's not as bad as just, you know, a sticker. Some sins are criminal. Some are illegal. Some result in a financial penalty. Some may even result in jail time. My point is some sins are scandalous and shameful. Everybody knows about it. Impacts a lot of people. Some are very, very private. And then there are sins that have lingering effects. Some sins carry greater consequences than others. I'm just telling you, after years of talking to women, abortion falls into that category. I mean, an innocent life is taken. That's going to leave an emotional scar. Fact number four. God's desire is for recovery and the return to a fruitful life. And what I want you to understand is that may be the most important of the four. The question is how. I mean, what needs to take place after we commit a sin that has lingering consequences? Three things, three steps. First of all, acknowledge the wrong. Not typically the way we do in our relationships. I said I was sorry. Why are we talking about it? I'm not talking about that. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins. Now, here's my question if you had an abortion. Have you gone to God and fully expressed the wrong that was done? No defensiveness. No excuses. No more trying to justify that what you did made sense at the time. 
has there been a full acknowledgement of the wrong that was done? That's what this word confess means. It, means. it means to acknowledge. Literally, it means you agree with God in every aspect. You agree with God in every aspect. It's like, you know, you're going this way. God wants you to go this way. When you confess, when you repent, you do a 180 and say, God, I thought I could go this way and be happy, but now I'm seeing that I'm going this way. I acknowledge your way is the only way to go, and now I acknowledge that you were right and I was wrong. That's what it means. This is what Proverbs 28 verse 13 says. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them does the 180. Finds mercy. That's a great promise. So acknowledge the wrong. Second, claim God's cleansing. You need to read Psalm 51 on your own. David wrote this psalm after his sin of adultery and then having Bathsheba's husband murdered to cover up the adultery. I mean, he broke two of the big 10, right? 20%, right? This is what it says in Psalm 51, beginning in verse one. Just let me read some parts of it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop. It was, it was a plant that was used for purification and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Look at this, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me with a willing spirit to sustain me. Now notice this, David says, then I will teach transgressors your way. It's the idea of teaching others and helping others who've made the same mistake that you've made, but you've learned from your mistake. I mean, who is better qualified to minister to a young lady who's getting ready to have an abortion than a young lady who's had an abortion? Who is better qualified to minister from, to a lady who's had an abortion but can't recover than a woman who's had an abortion and through God's grace has recovered? You may have never thought of it this way, but some of you, you've gone through this. You may be right on the verge of a ministry. God may be getting ready to use you in incredible ways. Claim God's cleansing. Third, refuse to live under bondage. Don't allow Satan, don't allow anybody else in your life to keep you under bondage to the past. Now let me just say this, to work through this process, you may need the help of a counselor. That would not be unusual. You may need a support group of some kind. At least you're gonna need a good friend that you can rely on. And that's why as you leave at all of our campuses this weekend, you're going to get a little card like this. Feel free, please take it. You say, well, if I take it, they're going to think I'm trying to get an abortion. No, no. But I bet you you have someone in your life at some point who's going to need this information. And on the back of this card, it gives you the contact information for the Hand of Hope. It also gives you our website and a link that if you go to it, all the resources that we have available to you to help you be restored to the fruitful life that God wants you to be restored to. On top of that, at all of our campuses this weekend, when the service is over, there's a quiet place that has been designated here at Raleigh. It's in the chapel where there will be people there that you could talk to right after all of the services. But make sure you take one of these cards because if you don't need it, you know someone in your life who will. But find freedom. Refuse to remain shackled and in bondage to the past. Let me close by just giving you some advice and encouragement. Here's the first thing. You can't undo the past. Don't try. Drugs won't do it. Alcohol won't do it. 
Destructive relationships will not do it. A new marriage will not do it. You can't undo what has already been done. Don't even bother trying. Second, you can't waste the future, so don't hide. Understand, God does not give us life simply for the purpose of just existing. God has a distinct purpose for each of us because we are created in his image. Trust me. Trust me, I don't care how you feel, there is a reason to move on, to go forward. Even if you've had an abortion, I want you to know something. You have a future with God, and you have a future with us. Let me just say that too. Let's bow together. Now before I pray, if you've had an abortion, you you, you have a choice to make. You can choose to continue to wallow in self-condemnation even though you've confessed. You can choose not to confess, which I promise you will just resort in all sorts of issues. You can rationalize what you've done, which at the end of the day solves nothing. Or you can go before God and say, God, you know that I'm just dust. God, you know that I have failed you but I lay before you the wrong. And by your grace and by your mercy, God, it will never happen again. So God, first, I claim your forgiveness. And second, God, I release the guilt and the shame. And when you've said that, you move on with your life. You claim the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that may sound oversimplified, but if you haven't made peace with your past, there's just no way you can flourish in your future. So drive the stake down. Deal with it now begin to move freely into your future. God, we know that you love life. It's created in your image. (laughs) You see something of yourself in us. There are times we look at our children or our grandchildren and we see little glimpses of us, our DNA. And you look at us and when when you see us, you see glimpses of yourself. So, Father, I pray that you would impress that on the minds of every person listening right now. I am created in the image of God. I am valuable. I am valuable. God, I pray for those women who so desperately want and need to find healing. I pray for the woman who right now may be considering an abortion. That now she sees it from your perspective, Father. She would realize you have a purpose in all of this. You have a purpose. And to have the courage to move forward. And Father, I pray for any person here who's listening that does not have a relationship with you. May they understand. (laughs) I am fearfully and wonderfully made by the creator of the universe. I think I want to get to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. And may they contact us so we can help them in that process. And we give you the glory for the healing that is taking place in all of our lives right now. In your name we pray. Amen.